Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future, a podcast of ideas. Today, we're talking about one of the biggest ideas of political philosophy of the last hundred years, John Rawls's Theory of Justice. Daniel Chandler has written a new book in which he argues that a 50-year-old philosophy can actually explain how to make justice real in the 21st century. And I'm joined by Leah Ippi to work out if that's really true. Did rules show how liberal democratic capitalism could be free, fair and equal? Or did he really show why that's always going to be a pipe dream? Past, Present, Future is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Listeners can subscribe to Europe's leading literary magazine for a special rate at lrb.me slash ppf. That's lrb. Me slash PPF. Daniel, we're talking about a philosopher who is a quintessential 20th century figure. His life more or less maps the century. John Rawls fought in the Second World War. His great book, Theory of Justice, was published in 1971, so more than 50 years ago. He remains a towering figure among people who study politics and philosophy in an academic setting but much less so outside of academia. Everything he wrote was before you were born, pretty much. (laughs) So at what point did you come across this man who Mm. dominates, but only dominates a very sort of specific way of thinking about politics? And most people, I think, would think quite a remote and abstract way of thinking about politics. At what point did you encounter him and think, this actually has the answers to how we should do it rather than just how we should think about it? Yeah. So, well, I guess I first encountered Rawls as an undergraduate studying the history of political thought at Cambridge. And I think I had immediately a very strong connection to the ideas. I think a lot of people read Rawls and find in his writing a kind of expression and a clarification of their political beliefs. There's a kind of a clarity and a consistency to his ideas that I think can be very compelling. So I think I found the ideas immediately compelling, but I don't think I ever thought I would write a book about Rawls. I don't think I particularly saw his relevance to politics as it was then or particularly today. I think my feeling that his ideas really did have the answers that we need today or something that's really missing from our political discourse came later. I think more around sort of post-Brexit, post-Trump, around that time, actually had read Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century, had decided to go back to university and study for a PhD in economics. And I guess was reading a lot of stuff about the crisis of liberal democracy and the terrible problems that we were in, and was very struck by how so much of that literature is fundamentally, or was fundamentally diagnostic. It's about how and why we had ended up in the situation that we were in, and that what was missing was 
a constructive defence of liberal democracy, one that recognised the failings of our institutions, but could give us a vision of what you know, a genuinely fair and just liberal democracy would look like. So I think it was around that period that I saw the need for ideas like Rawls's. I think what's exciting about Rawls is that his ideas are so fundamentally constructive and hopeful. And I think that was what was missing. So, so yeah, I think it was the, that sort of thinking about the crisis of liberal democracy that made me, and the lack of solutions that made me see the relevance of his ideas. Also, at the same time, I think I started to appreciate the economic radicalism of his ideas. I think Rawls is often interpreted as basically an apologist for the welfare state, maybe sort of souped up a little with a bit more redistribution. And it was going back to his economic ideas, seeing that that really misrepresents what he was about that made me feel much more excited about them and feel like they offered, you know, a vision of progressive politics that really met up to the challenges that we face today. And we will come to what those ideas are. And I'm glad you think we're post-Trump. That's reassuring. <laughs> oh, yeah. Leo, when did you first encounter rules? What did you think on a first encounter? Well, on the first encounter, he was a hostile target because I was doing, uh, I was studying philosophy as an undergraduate in Italy. And he was being taught in some of the courses, but the general orientation of the faculty was very historical and very philosophical. And I was very interested in metaphysical authors, so Kant and Hegel and uh, so on. And Rawls to me seemed, I was very dismissive at first because this idea that everything in Rawls and Rawls's method is based on the social contract. If you've actually studied all the social contract tradition, it seems like when you read him as an undergraduate who doesn't really know a lot about the world of philosophy, he comes across as someone who's just synthesizing some very basic ideas and makes them very um, plain and um, accessible. And for someone who's used to these kind of difficult big texts of you know Hegel and so on, he's, he can be a bit off-putting for someone who's you know studying philosophy because they're interested in difficult subjects. And I think that's what's very... Um, interesting about Rawls is that he's not a kind of flashy author. He does, he's not someone who, he's someone who kind of drives you in the conversation and has a lot of complexity and a lot of nuance, but you don't immediately see either the complexity or the nuance, or as Daniel was saying, the radicalism of it right away. So it was only when I then moved from a more continental environment to a more Anglo-American analytical political theory environment that I began to engage more closely with Rawls and then also appreciated him much more. So that social contract idea, let's start with that, the foundation of his thought. The phrase that's associated with him is the original position. It's a way of thinking about the world to ask yourself the question, how do I want to or how would I like the society in which I live to be structured? It's basic principles. It's basic guidelines. So whether this is original to rules or just a, a reheating of a familiar idea in the history of political thought, which is you have to ask yourself, what would people agree to? The way Rawls does it in the original position is to say, think of what you would agree to if you didn't know where you would be placed in this society. So it's not a complete stripping back so that you become a nobody. You are still you. But what you don't know about you is where you place in this society. And then you ask yourself, what would be the rules that I would be comfortable with in that state of ignorance? What's the appeal of that? What's the pull of that way of thinking? Daniel, what, what bite does it have for you? Because in some ways, it's pretty abstract, right? I mean, it's not saying, you know, what one question that you might ask of any 
political philosophy is to get people to think how the world looks from other people's point of view. You know, put yourself in someone else's shoes. But it's not that. It's not a kind of empathy version of this. You're privileged. Imagine what it's like not to be privileged. It's saying, just imagine you don't know who you are, which is, on the one hand, a very powerful idea. On the other hand, an incredibly thin idea. So if you don't know who you are, what do you know? Yeah, I mean, I think part of the appeal is that it's such a it's such an intuitive idea, an intuitive way of thinking about fairness. You know, it's sort of people often compare it to the idea that someone might cut a cake more fairly if they didn't know which piece they would get. I think it's just it sort of immediately, I think, strikes people as a natural way to think about what a fair society might look like in a fairly, if you wanted to do that in a fairly abstract sense. I also think it has a kind of resonance with, you know, the sort of golden rule, treat others as you might want them to treat you that you find in, you know, in lots of religions and other schools of thought. So I think, I mean, part of its appeal is that I think it has a very deep and intuitive resonance with a lot of people. And, you know, it was interesting thinking about how original it was. I think Rawls actually explicitly said that there was sort of nothing. He was very modest, famously modest, I think. And he also recognised that what he was doing was taking ideas from the history of political thought from the sort of greatest thinkers in the Western tradition, at least in his mind, and and turning them into something new. Um, so, yeah, I think it's partly that that thought experiment appeals to a widely shared intuitive sense of what it is to think about fairness. But I think what's exciting about them is that it takes this very familiar and kind of thin idea, ideas like, you know, that laws should be justified to everyone, that just because a law benefits you doesn't mean that it's fair, that people should have an equal say over the laws that govern them, takes these basic um, premises that I think lots of people find very natural and even obvious, and then turns them into a set of principles, rules as principles of justice, which I guess we will come to, we which will. are, <laughs> you know, which are very radical. And, you know, it sort of starts from somewhere that is almost, it seems obvious, and like, every, who would disagree with this way of thinking? It might seem a bit abstract, but, you know, why not give it a go and takes you somewhere that's quite surprising. Um, and I think that's the sort of, that's the rhetorical and philosophical and political power of the ideas is, and of his philosophy more broadly is its ability to sort of start somewhere that seems kind of obvious and where lots of people already are. And then in a sort of sequence of gentle steps, take them somewhere that's really quite radical. So I think there is also something, again, about Rawls's deceptive simplicity in asking you to concede that the starting point is the social contract and the question of the social contract, because I think it basically asks you to concede a certain point, certain way of thinking about ethics, which rules out half of Western philosophy, which is the idea that ethics is made of ideology, it's made of interests, it's made of a certain way of thinking about manipulation of preferences, it's made of uh, uh, individualism in many ways. And it always makes me think about, you know, in the in the Republic, in Plato's Republic, there's this big discussion between Socrates and Trasimachus about what is justice. And Trasimachus says, justice is the rule of the strongest. And Rawls clearly starts reflecting on justice completely dismissing that position, which is a coherent and actually very, very difficult position to dismiss in ethics. And so for me, what, uh, and I agree with Rawls's stance, but it's interesting that he starts by just ruling out there's another way of thinking about ethics, which is not as impartiality. And I think the original position is effectively a device for modeling impartiality, which is, again, a standard theme in the history of moral philosophy and history of political thought. But mm. Uh, yeah, one that is actually quite a big ask. 
Yeah. But I feel like Rawls would recognise that what most people, what lots of people have called justice in the past is just what the powerful want, what benefits the powerful in a way. I think of the original position as recognising the degree to which common sense notions of justice reflect just the interests of powerful groups. And it's it's a device for getting around that, for helping each of us to step back from the way in which our particular point of view and prejudices and interests inevitably come to influence our day-to-day political views and to sort of scrutinise and criticise them. So in a sense, I think, I mean, I, I think you're right that he's putting forward a view that justice should be, a normative view that it should be built on around a notion of impartiality, but not that he's, he's not denying, I suppose, that in, in lots of cases in the history of sort of thought and politics, that hasn't been the case. Yeah, right. But I mean, the point I think would be that if you then press further and ask, is it possible to step out of your individual position of ideology mm-hmm. and so on, then as a, again, half of Western philosophy would say no. Say no. And so, and that is, you know, that Trasimachus position, you find it in Nietzsche, you find it in Heidegger, you find it in a lot of, in Kierkegaard, you find it in the German romantics. So you can, mm-hmm. there's a lot of uh, counter positions. And it's actually interesting to me that a lot of Anglo-American philosophy starts by just making it sound as it's as though it's obvious that that is the right position because it's not it needs to be argued for mm-hmm. um, and there are ways of arguing it yeah. but it's uh, but the fact that you start with that yeah. is i think already a big step because you could say that part of the challenge that a Rawlsian approach faces is it's got to persuade the strongest right so this is a very intuitively appealing thing but it's sort of intuitively appealing you might say for kind of regular people to think about where they stand, middling people in a social democratic society. But Mm -hmm. it's also got to persuade the people with power. And they may also agree that in a nice thought experiment, if they didn't know they were powerful, this would be a very powerful argument. But unfortunately, they do know they're powerful. And that's where it has to have teeth. Does it have those teeth? Yeah, actually, I I'm not sure that it does have to persuade those who are in power. I mean, Rawls's philosophy, it's a philosophy for a democratic society. It has to persuade enough people to elect a government that will maybe constrain the power that the powerful currently have. I don't think it rests on an idea of politics where we all have to actually agree in practice that these are the laws that we want to be put into place. What it's, I think what it's trying to do is to reassure the broad majority who maybe are not part of a powerful elite that that reducing the power of that elite is justified and to persuade them that they should go ahead and do it but they should do it even if you know we don't need Jeff Bezos to agree to give up all of his money in order to enact laws that would force him to do so and similarly we don't need to persuade political elites to reform campaign finance we need to persuade enough people that that's justified and doable and then we should do it. So that does, and we'll come on to this, rest on an assumption that power lies in a certain place in democratic societies, and we'll come to that because it's not completely clear to me that is where the power lies. But let's get to the principles themselves. Yes. So, Daniel, as you said, on on one level, this is an intuitively non-controversial and quite straightforwardly appealing idea, a bit like cutting the cake. Mm -hmm. You said to people, does this sound fair to you that if you're cutting a cake, you have to do it from a position of ignorance rather than just give yourself the biggest piece? But Rawls also then insists that under those circumstances, we would agree, all of us, in the end, on what the broad principles are. So not just that we would agree this is a way of constructing fairness, but we would construct the same version of fairness. And it comes in three parts. Mm -hmm. And we'll try and do all the three parts. The first part is an idea of freedom. And Rawls says freedom comes first in that sense, liberties. 
that we would all agree that not knowing where we are in this society, we would want protection from certain kinds of infringements of our basic freedom. But as you say, Daniel, in your book, part of the radicalism of Rawls's version that people often miss, they say, well, so he's basically a liberal with some social democracy added on. But his description of what the freedoms are include political liberties, as he mm-hmm. calls them. So it's not just classic negative non-interference freedoms. People will leave you alone, not even perhaps people won't dominate you in particular ways, but you will have outlets for your political views. That's a version of freedom that you would not give up under any circumstances. Mm. Lair, I'll start with you. What does that mean to you, that political liberty part of it? How do you flesh that one out? Well, the way I understand it is, first of all, that it's not individualist in, in the sense that it's not just about the freedom of you know, doing whatever you want and and saying whatever you want. It's, it's a relational idea of freedom. And so it's a set of freedoms that are defined in relationship to how other individuals think about freedom. And I think most importantly, where political freedom has fair has to have fair value, as Raul says. And I think the fact that there is this relational element and this fair value of political freedom also shows you how just at that level, the theory is really revolutionary. Because in most of our societies, political freedoms don't have fair value in the sense that you have freedom of speech for people who have the means and the education and the opportunities to articulate themselves who have a certain background, and others just don't. And that already shows you that already at that level, the, the theory is extremely powerful and I think shows you, gives you a kind of critical perspective from which you can assess all the freedoms that we take for granted, freedom of association, the freedom to vote. If you have a political party system, for example, in which options are presented to you, defined in a certain way, parties are funded in a certain way, you have campaign finance where there's no limits to how much you can contribute for a particular campaign. That means that the offer is presented to you in a way that is already skewed to um, give an advantage to the rich when they articulate their ideological offer and then when you go and and vote. And that's, as I say, I think it's important to see that that's that that relational element of freedom that is defined in a non-individualistic way, in a non-almost anarchist way, in in a non-libertarian way, all Already at the very basic first principle of liberal societies. So could you say, Daniel, the critique of rules that he's basically a liberal and then he tacks on redistribution, misunderstands the ways in which the first principle, the principle of liberal freedom, is itself inherently redistributive, right? It it requires certain goods, social goods, to be much more fairly or evenly or equally distributed than they are, including in most liberal democratic societies. Yeah, yes, exactly. I think that that first principle, I don't know if I would necessarily call it redistributive, um, but it definitely would limit, sort of implies limits on inequality that we haven't done anywhere near enough to put into place. And that, you know, it's this, yeah, I think, as Leia said, this idea that political freedom, it's not only formal freedom, it's not just the right to vote and freedom of speech or assembly, it's the substantive freedom to actually have equal opportunity to exercise your political liberties, to engage in politics, to influence political decision making. And that, and I think Rawls is, he recognises, even though in his sort of typically subtle way, he doesn't highlight how revolutionary that idea is, but he's very explicit that 
no democratic society is even close to achieving that ideal of political equality and that no has ever really tried. And, you know, I suppose part of what I'm trying to do in my book is sort of pick up the sorts of policies that we would actually want to put in place if we took that principle seriously. And, you know, one of I think the place that I would start would be completely changing the way that we fund political parties. So in, you know, in 2019 in the UK, just over 100 super donors being responsible for more than half of all donations to political parties, that group giving nearly £500,000 each. And that's just the most blatant violation of Rawls's commitment to political equality that you could think of. And Rawls is very clear that we need to limit private donations and have some kind of public system for uh, funding political parties. He doesn't say much about what that would look like. One of the ideas that I put forward in my book is a democracy voucher system where you would give every citizen an equal amount of money per election or per per year or per election cycle and allow them to give that to the to the party of their choice. That seems to me to be a very natural implication of Rawls's commitment to political equality and also one that we actually could put into practice. So you say it's not necessarily redistributive, but that is a redistributive. Yeah, scheme. sorry, maybe I'm sort of, I suppose, yes, I guess that would be, it would redistribute, yes. <laughs> um, but the other thing that that does rely on is people wanting to exercise those freedoms in that way. So it does make, doesn't it, some assumptions about most people's willingness to engage with politics in that way and at that level. Mm. I don't know whether I'm being too sceptical here, but it's it's quite demanding, isn't it? It is, yeah. Can I just come up just with one more thing, I think, as well as the other part of achieving this ideal of political equality, that, that idea of a different way of funding political parties is in a sense a way of insulating politics from the inequalities that exist in society. I think that's one part of the strategy that's needed. And then the other is just to limit the largest inequalities themselves. I think no matter how much you do to try to insulate politics from inequality. If if some people have billions of dollars, they're going to find a way to influence politics. And I think that's the other also, I guess, redistributive implication of Rawls's theory is that just there is, there's a certain level of inequality that just isn't compatible with democracy. Well, I think your question, David, in a way is answered by assuming the social contract. So if you start by thinking about the social contract, and if you start by thinking about politics as the fundamental kind of elementary force of basic human relations, which is what the social contract device does, then you're already presupposing, again, a certain way of thinking about the relationship between the individual and the collective. And Rawls famously says, you know, there is no metaphysics and it's all political and so on. But I think in thinking about politics in that way, there is a metaphysical foundation in a way. And there is a a certain way of thinking about the human being, the person and social relations and morality, ultimately. So, but I, I don't have a problem with that. I think that's all good. You think that's what we are? Well, I think if you're thinking about politics in that justificatory way, and if you're committed to the ethical project of figuring out how should we relate to each other, not just as moral individuals, not just as moral people, but also as political beings who have to share a certain structure of cooperation, who have to relate to authority in a certain way, who have to think about these questions of power and how you justify power, then you're inevitably going in that direction. And I think that's the better direction to go in than the one that goes, you know, back to where we started Trasimakos and it's all it's all ideology, it's all manipulation, it's all preference, uh, uh, forcing and so on. But it still faces that challenge, which is sort of where we started. So Daniel said he first read this book as this sort of bracing, engaging philosophical text. And then later, 
in a particular situation of crisis of liberal democracy, mm. thought it was something that could actually translate out and, and have a grip on a world where people seem to be mm. drifting away from some of these ideas and ideals. But, you know, most people don't want to do politics. Most people don't want to spend much of their time thinking about the world in that way because it is so demanding. I mean, it doesn't mean that they want to therefore just say, oh, fine, let's just say justice is what the strong say and give up on it. As it were, most people are, relatively speaking, willing to step back and blink of themselves from the demands of this way of doing politics. I mean, you know, it might sound trivial, but give people democracy vouchers, they've got to spend them. And they might well not. Mm. And they might well not, not because they want to let the powerful rule them, but because under conditions of liberal modern life, many of us don't want to do that kind of demanding relational politics. But then I think we get back to the question of things will be done to you. So you will either engage with politics in a way that asks for reasons and gives reasons, and then you enter the project of defining what reasons are and what are acceptable reasons and unacceptable reasons or not, and so on. Or you're just a passive recipient of the force of others and of power. So you will power. be in, in the world. So then. you're anyway in that world. Yeah. And then the question is, how do you engage with that world? And do you engage in a way that assumes that reason has some force Or do you just say, oh, well, it doesn't matter, it's all... And that's, again, that's why it's the first question of politics in a way. And that's why I think Rawls, is, it's the right thing that he starts by saying, well, that's, let's just rule out this way of thinking about politics and let's now define it from a more moral perspective, what that means. Although I'm not sure that's quite how Rawls would put it, but this is how I understand him and that's why I put him in that tradition of political thought. Part, part of the Rawlsian response, I think, would be to persuade people to say that, you know, if we want this thing, we want democracy, then a certain level of political engagement is going to be required and that the state can take an active role in trying to make that happen. So I think, you know, you could that could come through civic education or, you know, the role of the education people in teaching people about the values of democracy and the importance of political engagement. It could also come through compulsory voting. So I think there's sort of resources within Rawls's theory to try to bring about at least a minimal, the minimal level of engagement that's necessary for a democracy to survive. On the other hand, I think Rawls, he talks about designing a realistic utopia. And part of his realism is the idea that we should take people as they are and not as we wish them to be. And I think, you know, there's a degree to which we might want to encourage people to engage in politics, but we also have to accept that it might be that lots of people want to spend their time doing other things. And that would then be a reason to design our political institutions in a way that that works with people who don't necessarily want to spend all of their time in politics. I think that would be part of the justification for a fundamentally representative democracy where the day-to-day -day demands on most people are not that great. And I think Rawls accepts a, a degree of division of labour in society, that some people will devote their life to politics and others won't. And I think part of the reason why that is the right way to go is this pragmatic recognition that a lot of people have other things that they want to spend their lives doing, and that's fine. But if we have to sort of we have to sort of work with that, find a way to make it work, despite people's the fact that some people won't want to be so involved. So I don't want to be the super skeptic here, but there's this big gap between what Leia was just describing and, say, compulsory voting or civics education. They have compulsory voting in Australia, right? Mm -hmm. It's not a Rawlsian paradise. It's not even close. It's not actually that different from here. Our form of democracy is pretty passive and civic education and compulsory voting isn't really going to change that. I mean, part of the radicalism 
for me, and I felt this reading your book, Daniel, is that if you really take this seriously, you've got to push much, much harder against our complacent assumptions about democracy mm. and that voting is the primary way that people express mm. this kind of political freedom. So you talked about you know, the project is partly just to elect a government that will do some of these things. But that, to me, also, by Rawlsian standards, sounds too passive and relies too much on an assumption that people will kind of get stuck in. Our version of democracy is very, very passive by the standards of Rawls's political liberties and political equality. And maybe we need something different. I mean, something much more democratically radical, more direct, more participatory, democracy in all aspects of our life, in, in work, in domestic life, I don't know, at the international level. I mean, I, I'm not sure you can funnel this through 21st century liberal representative democracy. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I have a, in my discussion of democracy in the book, I also make the case for combining a fundamentally electoral or representative system with new forms of direct participation. So at the local level, I think there's scope for a kind of assembly type democracy where people, where citizens participate directly in open assemblies. There's this famous Brazilian model of the city of Porto Alegre that's allocated local budgets in that way for, for a couple of decades now. But and the I fact we've been talking about that for a couple of decades yeah, always it, strikes me as a sign it hasn't spread. It hasn't, you know, but I, I think, well, it has, I think it actually has spread across the world. There's like a lot of examples at the local level of this kind of thing being done. And I suppose part okay, of what it hasn't I'm, scaled. Then. But it hasn't scaled. And I think, and that's the same, you know, the, the two mechanisms that I talk about for engaging citizens more directly are that kind of direct assembly democracy where people just meet in person. And then the other is, is citizens assemblies where the participants are selected at random, which is a way of achieving political equality, not a massive, you know, it's not involving very large numbers of people, but it's another way of involving citizens who are separate from an elected political class and which I think could also reinvigorate democracy. And I think in both cases there've been there's been sort of interest, there are interesting experiments. There's Brazil for local democracy, there's Ireland and its citizens assemblies um, for this kind of ran random selection type model. And what I'm arguing in the book is that the time now is to think about how to integrate them in a more thoroughgoing way into a democracy that maintains elections at its core, but it's really a kind of, it's like a mixed democracy in the same way that like, we talk about a mixed economy combining private and public ownership as maybe having certain virtues. I think we could take a similar, you know, there's no need to rely on one mechanism alone. I suppose I'm more optimistic that there's more we could do to try to incorporate those kinds of processes into our democracy. And that if we did, our democracy would be more vibrant and people would be more involved. Well, I mean, I don't think we have democracy. So, and I don't think we have democracy because I don't think democracy and capitalism are compatible. So all the pathologies that you were describing, I think are pathologies of living under a particular economic system that then shapes preferences and forms uh, views and that articulates and channels debates in a certain way. And I think one of the reasons for uh, the, the kinds of things that we see and one of the failures of participation, failures of interest, failures of kind of taking an interest in the public good, I think is because we live under an economic system that doesn't encourage and incentivize citizens to think like citizens. It encourages and incentivizes them to think as private actors. And, uh, and so I think, I don't think Rawls is to blame there. And I don't think his views are particularly demanding. I think where he is to blame is perhaps in not having emphasized enough what he does say towards the end of the, his life, which is that 
he doesn't think that democracy and capitalism are compatible. And that's why, in the end, he also says that even the most benign form of capitalism, which is a welfare state capitalism, is ultimately not really compatible with his theory of justice and that his theory of justice requires either what he calls property-owning democracy or liberal socialism. So I think that's where you really get the critical purchase out of Rawls. But Rawls didn't really articulate or go into a lot of detail about that. But every time he was asked explicitly about it, he didn't back off. So it's not like he said, no, no, I think the kinds of societies that we live in are fine and they're more or less broadly in line with the theory of justice and with the principles. He always insisted and emphasized that they weren't. And I think that, that, that sheds a completely different light on the kinds of political and economic systems that we have. But I think it also then sheds a different light on what Daniel was saying about does Rawls really start by saying taking let's take people as they are I don't think Rawls takes people as they are or at least not as they are empirically he takes people as they are but what he means by that is they have a sense of justice and have the, and they have a capacity to form revise and pursue a conception of the good but these are not empirical people. This is a philosophical idea of the person. And again, it's a moralized idea of the person. So it's not just, you know, oh, well, let's just go with whatever the public says or whatever public opinion says about whether capitalism is a good society or a bad society. I don't think Rawls makes any concessions on those fronts. And that's why, although the style is very accommodating and very inviting, I think the content is actually pretty revolutionary. So does that mean, from your point of view, that the sequencing of the principles is wrong? In the sense that people tend to think you'd get the freedom sorted out. And that includes certain freedoms of property and other things that people associate with capitalism. And then you do the more economic stuff. So the other two principles state that equality of opportunity has to be there. And, you know, to go back to the original position, your chance of leading a good life shouldn't be conditioned by the advantages that you're born with insofar as that's possible. And then the famous Maximin principle, which is inequality should work to the advantage of the least advantage. So, the least well-off in a given society, you can allow inequality if it raises their conditions of life. But if the problem is capitalism, should you start in the domain of the second principles and not the first? I don't think so, because you can construct a critique of capitalism just based on the first principle as well. Freedom. Yeah. And, capitalism and makes this us idea of relational freedom that Rawls talks about. You know, even if you care about the very basic liberal freedoms, freedom of free speech, freedom of association, um, these are all not possible under capitalism. And he says as much. So I think it's... Uh, and for me, the question... I mean, Rawls obviously insisted that there's a lexical priority of uh, one principle of the other. But ultimately, they are a package, and the package is there to articulate a certain view of the relationship between the moral person and the political authority, which is the founding principle of the social contract, which is why I was I started by saying I was initially not that interested in Rawls, because it seems very obvious that this is... Uh, there is an organic unity of these principles and the whole of history of modern political philosophy has been an effort to try and articulate exactly that. I think it would be helpful just to clarify what Rawls means by capitalism. And I think there's completely right that Rawls is critical of, rejects capitalism, both on the grounds that it's incompatible with political equality or democracy, and that it doesn't deliver the kind of economic justice that his second principle spells out, which you just explained. Sorry, can I and, just say, it doesn't deliver freedom. Which is the first principle. That's where we were talking. The second principle is also there and is very important. But yeah. what Rawls says about even welfare Sorry, state that's capitalism. When I said political equality, I meant 
sort of freedom, political right. liberty. So okay. yeah, that right. that to me, that's the sort of the first I'm sort of summarising political freedoms as political equality. But just I think what maybe it's worth clarifying what Rawls means by capitalism, because for Rawls, capitalism is an economy that has private ownership markets, but also that private ownership is concentrated in the hands of a small capitalist class. And what he really objects to about capitalism is that concentration of private ownership. And then he sets out these two different regimes that might be compatible with political freedom and with his vision of economic justice. One which is a liberal socialist regime where private property is owned. You know, companies operate in a market context, but are ultimately owned by the state. Or a property-owning democracy, which is also a market-based economy where property is privately owned, but very widely, if not completely equally dispersed. And he's very, no, both of them he characterises as alternatives to capitalism. But I think, anyway, it's just because some people, I think, when you say not capitalism, I think they might think that's also a rejection of any form of markets or private ownership, whereas obviously Rawls sets out these two, two different options. Uh, I think that's very important, though, to clarify, because I don't think socialism is about rejecting private ownership. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think socialism is premised on private property and it's premised on the exchange of private property. Some people privately own themselves and their bodies and their labor power and other people own the means of production. And so I think it's this is one of the biggest uh, caricatures of socialism to say that socialism is against private ownership, because, in fact, the difference between socialism and other ways of running the economy that you've had you know, in the feudal past or in slaveholding societies and so on, is that it's based on a formal contractual equality between the people who sell something and what they have to sell is just their labor. And so they own themselves and they own their labor and the people who have the means to buy something. What the difference is about, I think, is really what kind of ownership we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And I think the difference between a liberal and a capitalist regime, it's about the ownership of, you know, what Rawls would say, the commanding heights of the economy or the vast, the, the big means of production. Mm -hmm. So the big companies where then you can really see how asymmetries of power and bargaining capacity impact how much people have and under what in what position they enter the labor market and so on. But I think it would be really good if people actually tr try to be a bit more sophisticated in how they discuss ownership, because mm -hmm. I don't think that the difference between socialism and, and capitalism is about ownership at all. Because as I say, socialism starts by recognizing that there is equal ownership on paper. But then when you try and articulate and, and clarify what that means, that's where you get the problems. But it's premised on the idea of recognizing ownership, the, the ownership of workers over themselves, which is different from, say, slaves who didn't own themselves and didn't, didn't have anything to sell. And that's why they were slaves. Mm. I think part of the appeal of Rawls's theory is that it exactly allows for that conversation because Rawls is very clear that the kind of property that really that's an absolute non-negotiable is ownership of personal property. You know, your clothes, your personal belongings, maybe a house and not the ownership of the means of production. He's he's sort of open-minded about whether the means of production should be privately owned, owned by the state, maybe owned in worker cooperatives. That's all you know, depending on what works best to facilitate democracy and to promote economic justice. What's helpful about rules is you can almost set aside the definitional questions about what exactly is socialism, what's liberalism, and have a clear discussion about just what kind of property, what kind of regime of property is justified. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So can I ask a question about the relationship between equality of opportunity and then the maximum principle? Mm-hmm. So the maximum principle focuses on the worst of. But we've just been talking about societies like ours where so much wealth and power are hoarded by a few right at the top. There, there are concentrations of wealth and power, which makes equality of opportunity very, very difficult to come by because so much is closed off and so many advantages still are advantages of birth. The maximum principle implies you know, being quite relaxed about wealth at the top as long as it brings up people at the bottom. But equality of opportunity doesn't sound like it's compatible with being relaxed about wealth at the top and being relaxed about particularly the ways in which different kinds of power tend to concentrate in particular places and with particular people. Daniel, you write about the need to reform the news media in control of information. Well, control of information, control of big companies and corporate power, Mm -hmm. political power, the ways in which people are obsessed with nepotism at the moment because they've noticed that in societies like ours, the kids of... Wealthy people end up wealthy. The kids of actors end up as actors. The kids of politicians end up as politicians. Family still really sort of structures this. Is Maximin a distraction? Should we really be focusing on breaking up the way that money and power go together at the top to deliver on what rules believed in? Mm. Well, I think I think both equality of opportunity and maximum or the difference principle, as Rawls calls it, uh, they both add something different. I think you're right that equality of opportunity just on its own, I think it's sometimes dismissed as as the sort of weak version of progressive politics, as if it's not a very radical principle. And I think that's a massive misunderstanding. And all politicians, it should be said, are in favour of equality of opportunity. I mean, that's that's part of the political potential of that ideal, is it's both incredibly widely shared as something we should be aiming for right across the political spectrum. But you don't have to look very carefully to see that we're falling a really long way away from achieving it. And part of, you know, the school system, the kinds of things that we normally hear about as the things that might allow us to achieve equality of opportunity, even in an unequal society, I think are really important. That there's a degree to which we can compensate for the inequalities that exist between families by investing much more in early years education for children from disadvantaged backgrounds and or providing that on a universal basis. Tackling maybe, you know, in the education system, focusing resources on disadvantaged children in schools. I make the case in my book for abolishing private schools as another way that would make the education system work in a way that really promotes equality of opportunity. But I also agreed that there's a limit to how far any education system can compensate for the inequalities that exist in our society and that equality of opportunity on its own also requires limits on 
inequalities of income and wealth. You know, it's, it's, I think it's helpful to have a conceptual distinction between equality of opportunity and equality of outcome. But in practice, the two are obviously closely related. And, you know, parents' outcomes are children's opportunities. And, you know, you can't have equal opportunities for children unless you, at the very least, you know, I would sort of, I suppose my order of priority would be first to eliminate poverty because I think it's growing up in poverty that's the biggest barrier to equality of opportunity and the gaps in terms of, you know, the strength of the relationship between parental resources and how children do in life are really are strongest right at the bottom, but also then right at the top. So the second principle adds a different ideal for thinking about economic justice beyond just uh, equalizing opportunities as a, as a sort of ideal of, of reciprocity and shared prosperity. It's fair that some people benefit from having talents that maybe are more valued in the market, but only if by doing so that ends up benefiting everyone. And, you know, I think it's where maybe we'll come back to this, but part of what's exciting about that second principle, this the difference principle, is that it's not just about the distribution of money as well. It's he's, Rawls is arguing that inequalities of power and control, of opportunities for self-respect, they also need to be justified in our society in a way that benefits everyone. And I think, in a way, we're saying that Rawls's theory is radical on many different fronts. And I think some of the equality of opportunity points in some directions to so the importance of the school system to limiting wealth inequalities, and then the difference principle points in other directions, like democratising the workplace. I think what's really interesting about the way in which the equal opportunity principle and the difference principle come together is that the difference principle is supposed to tackle the structural traps of meritocracy. In a way, we live in this world where we think, you know, the, if you can have equality of opportunity, then you'll have real meritocracy. And what Rawls does is in some ways show that actually there is a need for thinking about how meritocracy is not just about how the individual performs and what opportunities the individual has, but also thinking about the structural gaps in society and how you can have this advantage that is reproduced along these structural lines. What's really interesting for me, and if I can be a little bit more critical of roles at this point, <laughs> is that having seen the structural traps in domestic societies, so in liberal capitalist societies that we live in, Rawls is completely oblivious to the fact that there are structural traps in the world as well, and that there is an international uh, global system where countries fail to perform and where what he does is in some ways he takes the meritocracy principle or, or gives you a much more sophisticated critique of the meritocracy principle within domestic societies. But when it comes to the global order and when he comes to reflect on what you know a just global society of states would look like, there is no version of the second principle. There's only a version of the first principle and there's no requirements for global equality and so on. And I think that's where Rawls isn't radical enough and in some ways falls fails by his own standards because he sets up this really demanding ideal of justice for liberal Western capitalist societies, which acts as a vehicle of social critique. But when he comes to reflect on the world where, um, you know, you have the same kinds of inequalities and sometimes with even more um, um, profound impact on the lives of states and people who are situated in certain states and who are born in certain countries, the, the critical punch at that level is gone because what you get is a version of, you know, international society. Well, you have international human rights and you have something like the United Nations, you have global institutions of the kind that we more or less know, but without the kind of critical purchase that you get in Rome 
controls is domestic theory. And it's really interesting that having seen these structural traps in domestic societies, he really doesn't reflect on how the same structures are present in the world and in fact give you uh, and give the rich a way of escaping from the constraints of social democratic domestic politics within rich societies because there is this global state of nature where they can do things and they can go and invest where labor is cheap and where is no regulation and where is no financial capital regulation and so all of the things we know and Rawls doesn't really have a lot to say to address those things. Yeah, I sometimes think if you conceive the original position as sort of we're up somewhere in the clouds and our name is being pulled out of a hat and before we know what comes out of the hat, what are the rules that govern the society in which we live, what people would want to know is what country am I going to be born in? Not you know, where am I going to be in a given country? They would, they would prioritize that. There's a huge difference between the name comes out of the hat and you're going to be in Japan and the name comes out of the hat and you're going to be in South Sudan, right? That would be, I think, most people's priority. We, we want a world in which that's not the overwhelming difference. Now, I know what Rawls and a Rawlsian would say, which is we do not have the political instruments for doing Rawlsianism on that scale, which we do within domestic settings. So you you could say, you know, a radical version of rules is anti-meritocratic in the pejorative sense. And, you know, all politicians believe in equality of opportunity, but all politicians also believe in sort of centres of excellence and concentrating excellence and getting sort of universities in places where there's economic growth. And so I live in Cambridge, one of these centres of excellence. And I just think it's absurd that everyone thinks this is a good thing, that all the smart people come there and all the rich people come there and all the smart kids come there. And this is going to make for a better and fairer world. Whereas an obvious thing that a state could do would be to redistribute those opportunities across, say, Britain or even England or even the east of England, to be frank. But there is no scope for doing that internationally. I mean, I'm looking at you, Daniel, though, really, it's yeah. a question for later. But you know, on the one hand, the, the sort of moral force of this argument is overwhelming at the international level. And on the other hand, it's easy at that point to feel defeatist. Mm. Because what would be the mechanism that would make people think South Sudan versus Japan is not where my fate is ultimately bound up? What would be that mechanism? Mm. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think you're right. I think part of rules, the reason rules focuses or has a different focuses on domestic justice is just pragmatic. The, the reason that you've just set out, you know, and actually, I'm not really going to try to defend rules against Lair's critique, because I think that his theory of global justice is not as strong. And my book is really all about how his theory for domestic justice, his core theory of justice has so much to offer us. And I've kind of intentionally not strayed into the global sphere, because I think I'm not as sure. I, it's not my sort of, it's not my expertise. And I'm not as sure that his his theory either is as widely accepted or as easy to justify. I think maybe where I would, I mean, a couple of things to know. I think one thing is, I think Rawls is right that what we owe one another, what justice depends on the nature of the relationship that we have to other people and that, you know, we have stronger, different obligations to our family members than we do to our fellow citizens. And similarly, we have different and probably and stronger obligations to our fellow citizens than we do citizens of other states. And that's because we are in a very particular relationship with other citizens. We share the coercive political power of the state and we need to justify how that power is used. And there's a very high standard for justifying that power. And Rawls's thought experiment, the original position, sort of uh, embodies that very high standard of justification. You need to justify the use of the coercive power in the state in a way that can 
no, you need to justify it to everyone from every position that they could end up in society. And I guess that the reason why he thinks a different and weaker standard applies in the global sphere is that we don't share that kind of power. And if there was a global state, then this would, then I think his domestic principles would apply. But he sort of just pragmatically says, but we don't, there's not much chance of that happening. And so instead he has a different, you know, he, he reformulates the original position when he comes to think about justice between countries in a different way as a relationship between between countries rather than with between individuals. Well, so one things to say about one of the things to say about the difference between the domestic and the global original position. So Rawls rethinks the global the original position when he reflects on what he calls the law of peoples, right? He thinks about global justice and in the original position, in the global original position, the representatives are states. And in the domestic original position, they're not states. But one of the one of the criticisms is that the when you think about the transition from this kind of non-ideal to the ideal society, even at the domestic level, in Rawls's original position, there is this assumption that people enter by birth and leave by death. So exit is not really an option. But in the world that we have, exit is an option. Companies can exactly avoid the constraints of social democracy or even the kind of minimal requirements of the welfare state by deregulating through the mechanisms of the global financial and the global markets. And I think that's where you can really see that his thinking about the world is relevant because, or, or rather his lack of thinking through the principles of justice at the global le- level is relevant because the domestic theory of justice also fails because of the ways that mechanisms of cooperation. The other thing to say is that, yes, at one level, there is this question of the coercive power of the state. And the coercive power of the state means that there is a kind of higher burden of justification. But the state is not the only coercive institution. And in fact, you know, in capitalism, it's not the state that is the coercive institution. It's the market that coerces or the capitalist market that coerces and that deploys the state system, relies on the state system for a very distinctive kind of coercion, which is based on the lack of cooperation between states. So the fact that the theory of justice at the global level doesn't have the tools to set up and to deliver a proper, robust defense of both freedom and equality is very problematic in the world in which we live because it means that we can't really do anything because the world in which we live is exactly the way David was saying. It's with the domestic problems that we face are the result often of global problems. And if you don't have a robust mechanism for and a robust theory that enables you to articulate at the global level, then it's the, you can't do anything even at the domestic level. Mm. I think you know, if we need to reform international institutions in order to make domestic justice possible, I feel like that would follow very naturally from Rawls's original theory of justice, that, you know, if we want to achieve his very demanding principles within a society, then societies are also going to have to cooperate in a particular way. I suppose what's different is that they're doing that in order to achieve justice for themselves and not necessarily to achieve justice for other countries. And that maybe that's where the, the sort of two perspectives depart. Well, I mean, I think that's it really is about what is the unit of concern. So is the unit of concern your fellow citizen, as it seems to be if you only focus and you prioritize yeah. Rawls' domestic theory of justice, or is the unit of concern the human being and then it becomes a moral theory for the world? And yeah. so I think that, but there is a, a lot of difference there because yeah. it gives you a very, very different theory of the state, a very different theory of political action, a very different set of assumptions about political institutions, about parties, parties democracy, once you question the state, then you have a whole different way of thinking about politics. One last question for both of you. 
So Rawls, in some ways, is stronger on the reciprocal relations that are owed to people who aren't yet born than he is on the reciprocal relations owed to people around the globe. So in various versions of the theory, mm. and then you talk about it in your book, mm. and it's clearly relevant to a world that is getting hotter mm. and, in that sense, more dangerous to live in, Rawls has quite a lot to say about what we owe future generations. Mm. And it is understood in reciprocal terms. In, and he says, and you, you phrase it like this at one point, that we should sort of think about, it's a very Rawlsian way of thinking about it, we should think about people who are yet to be born and our relationship to them as we would want people now dead long ago to have thought about us. Mm. So there's a famous counter-argument to that, which is if 100 years ago people had thought, you know, we're running out of natural resources, you know, we need to sort of rein in, we need to sort of hold on to these resources so that we can pass them on to people in 100 years' time, we would be furious with those people because we'd be really poor now. You know, as were our ability to do the kind of world that we live in now, including social democracy on a kind of modern Western European scale, does slightly depend on the fact they didn't do that, actually, that economic growth, which is one of the drivers of certain kinds of progress, we all know that, wasn't prematurely cut off. So how do we know? It's a huge question. You're going to have to answer it quickly. But how do we know what we owe people in 100 years' time? And how do we know when they look back at us that they would be happy if we rein it in now? There's a basic minimum, which is we've got to give them an inhabitable planet. So mm -hmm. maybe that's the threshold at which we... Mm -hmm. But beyond that, it's quite hard to know what's reciprocal about this because a lot of it does depend on not just sort of discount rates and everything else, but the, the radical uncertainty of a 100-year future relative to now. I mean, in a way, I'm sort of agreeing with Leia. I think that the contemporary global one, which he's weaker on, has a much stronger hold on us than the one that's become more fashionable, which is we should be thinking about people in 100 years' time. If we're distant both in time and in space from people who might be a lot worse off than us, I would focus on the space, not the time. I probably have an, an unsatisfying answer to what we owe future generations, partly because I think Rawls does too. I think he recognises that's a really central question for justice, but he also basically gives a sketch of an answer. And the, the one thing he says, he's like, I can't, he sort of doesn't try to give a complete answer to what we owe future generations, but he said at the very least, we need to pass on an environment and the sort of social and political institutions that are necessary for maintaining a just society, that we don't have an obligation to maximise the income of the least well-off way into the future. We need to, Rules is clear that our relationship to, it, it is reciprocal in some sense, but it's reciprocal in a different way to what we owe our, the fellow citizens who are alive here and now. And it's reciprocal in a way, you know, it's, it's less demanding. And basically we just have, there's a minimum threshold that we owe to future generations. And I think that would imply probably less economic growth. He's clear that, that the level of economic prosperity that we've already achieved is sufficient to maintain just institutions. And we don't have a moral obligation to increase that further for future generations, even though we can choose to do so if we want to. Well, I was thinking about your counterfactual of previous generations, and I thought that I would think of that differently if I was from a colonial place or if there was, if I was a, a representative of a group that has suffered from historical injustice as a result of what capitalist countries and as a result of the model of development that we had in capitalist countries. And we would be thinking about a lot of these things very differently, which takes me to the question about the future. Yes, there are a lot of uncertainties, but what we can do is we can diagnose the problems correctly. And to diagnose the problems correctly for roles, 
is to diagnose them from a position of impartiality. Unfortunately, he doesn't take us that far because I don't think he takes what the, the, the tools that he has given us in thinking about impartiality. He unfortunately restricts them to the kind of core liberal Western wealthy countries and doesn't really take them to the world. But I think if we were to take that mechanism of impartiality and the, the core moral insight of his theory to the world, then we would have a way of thinking about the problems that is much better than the way of thinking about the problems which we have now, which is unfortunately is the result of ideology and bias and just occupying this privileged position in the West. Yeah, it takes us back to where we started. So I said we, and it just depends on who we are. Daniel Chandler's book about rules is called Free and Equal. What would a fair society look like? It's available now, wherever you get your books. Leia Ippi's book is just called Free, Coming of Age at the End of History. It's out now in paperback. Both are highly recommended. Next week on Past, Present, Future, it's episode two of the new series of History of Ideas. And I'm going to be talking about the philosopher David Hume and trying to explain how an essay written in the middle of the 18th century helps to explain what's going on in American politics today. Please join me for that. Please follow us at PPF Ideas on Twitter. My name is David Runciman, and this has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. <laughs>